Hello and welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. This spring, the Gray Center was scheduled to host a conference focused on questions of regulating internet platform companies. Well, we weren't able to have that conference for reasons that are fairly obvious, uh, the COVID-19 outbreak. We wanted to make sure, though, that our audiences would hear about the papers that we were going to discuss, a series of papers on issues ranging from uh, Facebook regulation to Airbnb and local governments. And so the authors and I are meeting through podcasts to discuss the papers and the larger policy issues that they're describing. We're releasing these in a, a series, and so I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope you'll tune in for future episodes of Arbitrary and Capricious. One of the most vexing issues of public policy in recent years has been discussions about the role of internet platform companies, social media companies in our lives, in our politics, in our world. And much of this debate has centered around a once obscure provision of federal law titled Section 230. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act passed 25 years ago almost to help give some legal protection to internet platforms in a very nascent stage in the history of internet development. Now there are calls to either reform the statute or administer it differently. And so with that issue in mind, the Gray Center was very pleased to invite a few scholars to come and write papers exploring these debates surrounding Section 230. Some of the policy solutions, I'll put that in quote quote marks because I know my guests might disagree with the idea that they are solutions, but these policy solutions that are being offered by various commentators. And in fact, at an earlier roundtable and conference, the Gray Center uh, uh, hosted a paper by Adam Kandube, then of Michigan State University, calling on Section 230 reform to treat uh, certain internet websites as what we call common carriers. Well, I'm very glad then to be joined by my two guests today, Enrique Armijo and Matthew Feeney. Enrique Armijo is our Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and a professor at the Elon University School of Law, and he's also affiliated with the Yale Law School's Information Society Project. Enrique, thanks for joining us today. And I'm also joined by Matthew Feeney. Matthew directs the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Why don't we just start with some overview about the situation in general before we dive into the two papers that you wrote, um, just so authors or sorry, so our audience knows both of these papers, like all the Gray Center's working papers, are available on the Gray Center's website in the working papers menu. Enrique Armijo's paper is titled Reasonableness as Censorship, Algorithmic Content Moderation, the First Amendment and Section 230 Reform. And Matthew Feeney's paper is titled Defending the Indispensable, Allegations of anti-conservative bias, deep fakes, and extremist content, they don't justify Section 230 reform. Well, Matthew, why don't you tell us what Section 230 is and why we have it? Right, yeah. I'm, I'm In preparation for this, I was wondering of how far back I should go to get this conversation started. But um, I think it's fair to say that uh, Section 230 emerged uh, thanks to a couple of court cases in the 1990s that dealt with uh, bulletin boards and online content that were uh, then uh, certainly being used increasingly, but nowhere close to... Um, as, as popular as uh, the modern internet is now. Uh, and I suppose it was only a matter of time before 
uh, courts were asked to uh, figure out who was liable for illegal content on these uh, bulletin boards and messaging systems. Um, so in, in 1991, you had a case involving uh, CompuServe uh, where a, a judge held that because uh, CompuServe uh, didn't engage in much content moderation, it was kind of like uh, the modern uh, equivalent of a library or a news vendor. Uh, and this, this specific question dealt with uh, uh, the content that was allegedly uh, defamatory. Uh, what, what's interesting here is I, I imagine many listeners uh, don't know what CompuServe uh, uh, was, but it was a, you know, an internet service provider. Um, a few years later, though, there was a case dealing uh, with uh, Stratton Oakmont, uh, the company uh, that m some listeners might know from the movie Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, and here uh, there was another uh, internet service uh, company called called Prodigy, uh, which unlike um, CompuServe, um, actually did engage in some kind of uh, content moderation. It uh, did uh, use technology to screen for certain content uh, and had content moderation policies. And and there, though, uh, the, the court held that uh, because Prodigy was taking steps in order to moderate certain content, uh, actually it could um, be held liable as a publisher. Uh, and so in, yeah. so in your paper, you describe that as the moderator's dilemma. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so as these two cases emerge, this this dilemma emerges, which is that these court decisions seem to be giving uh, the emerging Internet industry um, a choice between, well, we, we moderate content and then face potential liability um, as the publisher uh, or we take a hands off approach and we. Uh, we, we don't face that kind of liability. Um, and, and Representative Chris Cox, uh, then a, a Republican from California, uh, read about the Prodigy decision and could immediately see this dilemma uh, emerging and wrote Section 230 uh, in response with his colleague, Ron Wyden. Uh, and, and in sum, uh, after this long throat clearing, uh, what they came up with was Section 230, which says um, the, the two important parts. Uh, one is a shield, which uh, explicitly states um, basically repudiation of the Prodigy case saying uh, interactive computer services are not publishers of third-party content. Uh, and then it gives uh, those interactive computer services uh, a sword, which says, and by the way, you're safe to moderate content as you see fit. Uh, and that's Section 230. And it's um, been in the news more and more recently because of um, allegations from the political right of anti-conservative bias. But it's also, um, I think, important to remember that the political left has its own complaints about uh, the legislation, particularly when it comes to uh, harassment, uh, foreign interference in elections, uh, the emergence of deep fake content. And uh, that's what motivated me to write the paper. Well, thank you. And Enrique, in your paper, um, you also sort of trace the, the, the history of Section 230, and you identify, I think, four basic problems that are now being wrapped up in the Section 230 debates. Um, there are uh, debates about perceptions of bias in the way that these companies, so Facebook, Google, Twitter, and others, might be um, moderating or, or, or I guess it's, it's more than moderating, but just to changing the way that content is presented to their users. So there's questions of bias, there's questions of deep fakes, there's questions of um, degrading content, as you describe it, I think, in the, the proposal from uh, Ben Wittes and Danielle Citrone, although I, I might be miss, um, I, I might be thinking of the wrong paper there. And, and finally, the issues of extremism. So why don't you just walk through really briefly what, um, what some of these practical issues are that have 
sort of stirred up fights about Section 230? Yeah, sure. So they, just going back to kind of the pre-Section uh, 230 uh, history that, that Matthew just describes and that he describes in his paper, it's it, it's really, you know, one way to read it is a story uh, that's really the, the overarching uh, story in the area of law and technology. And that's, and that's courts just looking for the right analogy um, in, the, in the face of an emerging technology. So, and then, as, as Matthew said, you know, the, this immunity uh, expressly uses the term um, publisher or speaker, uh, the Section 230 immunity. And that's very intentional because, you know, what the drafters of Section 230 were trying to do was get away from this uh, common law idea uh, around the issue of republication liability. So if, since I'm a torts teacher, I'll just talk a little bit about republication liability. And the idea there is... Um, I guess Matthew describes, you know, the New York Times is liable for defamation published in its paper under the republication rule. So there's no attribution defense from defamation for the New York Times based on the mere fact that the statement that the Times published was a statement of somebody else rather than the New York Times itself. And and in fact, the the New York Times versus Sullivan, which is probably the most uh, famous First Amendment case of all, and one of the maybe five most famous Supreme Court cases of all, is itself a republication rule case because they're uh, Commissioner Sullivan sought to hold the New York Times liable not uh, for a story in the New York Times, but for an ad uh, that was published by by some third party uh, civil rights activists. So Section 230 is a way to kind of get away from these common law principles. And 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 what I what I see uh, and what I discuss in the paper is a lot of these reform efforts just are an attempt to get back to some of those common law principles, or at least the interpretation uh, of the reformers' common law principles um, into the into the Section 230 debate. And then the first one uh, that you mentioned, and the one I probably spend the most time on the paper, is uh, calls uh, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom to um, condition Section 230 immunity on reasonableness. So if a uh, if a platform acts reasonably with respect to its uh, moderation of content, then it can't be liable. If it acts unreasonably, then it might be liable for third-party content. And again, this is a common law principle. Uh, reasonableness is, is is the kind of foundation of negligence liability. So really, basically, we're, what those proposals ask is that content moderation uh, be the subject of liability for third-party content if it is unreasonable. And what I talk about in the paper is how this works in regular tort law. You know, it's a standard that applies to every actor in a firm and in an industry that makes the same product. But content moderation is nothing like that. You know, you, you have uh, websites of all sizes, uh, Facebook and Twitter, around which a lot of the rhetoric is based. But you also have the New York Times. You also could have a, uh, a comment section uh, in a, you know, underneath this podcast that the Gray Center might want to put in to, to encourage debate around the issues that we're talking about today. So a range of content moderation practices, including potentially um, artificial intelligence, which I also talk about in the paper, that the largest actors in the firm are at least um, saying might be possible sometime soon. When you kind of insert the law of reasonableness into this particular market, what you have are some serious dangers, uh, including um, the what con- what constitutes reasonableness being set by the largest actors. So, and Facebook and Twitter can obviously afford um, to devote the greatest number of resources. You know, tens of thousands of of, of moderators for third-party content, artificial intelligence screening third-party content. 
And the danger is that that becomes the basis by which to judge reasonableness by smaller actors and and, and smaller uh, websites and platforms in the content space. And then as as you as you and Matthew talked about with respect to the moderator's dilemma, the choice is going to be um, either um, let everything um, in, uh, let all 30 part, party content on the platform, or don't have a platform because the smaller uh, new entrants are just not going to have the capacity to moderate content. Um, and in order to avoid reasonable, uh, avoid liability for acting unreasonably, uh, the, 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 the incentive is going to be to take down content. And Matthew will probably talk about this with Sessa and Fosta because there's no incentive to even risk um, liability with respect to um, third-party content that might be the basis of liability. So the edge case gets pushed out. So I talk a lot about reasonableness um, and how it's a duty-based concept and how it's actually a common law principle that uh, should not be used uh, with respect to content moderation. And the second one uh, I'll talk about is the idea of imminence. And this goes back to uh, Supreme Court cases that basically say um, to be uh, held liable for inciting illegal contact by another person, uh, that contact, that, that illegal content has to be, has to be imminent. So the, uh, the, the illegal content that has been incited by the speaker has to happen pretty much immediately or very shortly afterwards. And if that time period is short enough, then we can say that it's fair to substitute the will of the speaker with the will of the actor. And I talk about how this concept doesn't lend itself really at all to online speech uh, and especially uh, platform moderation of third-party speech because there are all kinds of things that, can, that have to happen between the speech and the act and the online context. Um, and therefore, there are serious First Amendment problems um, uh, related to trying to hold um, the platform, the host of the speech, uh, liable for illegal content uh, that is being incited by a speaker who's, who uses that platform for their inciting speech. Yeah, this is one of the things that I found so interesting about your paper. Um, so much of the debate around Section 230 has been, you know, policy arguments, and, and we'll talk about that a lot still. Um, but your paper um, takes the, the further step of saying that setting aside policy merits, I mean, you, you get into the policy merits, but even just setting those aside, there remain First Amendment limits on what Cong- what kind of liability Congress could impose on these companies or expose these companies to simply because of the First Amendment, that content moderation policies are themselves speech um, or the, the act of moderating content is itself an act of speech when it's happening on websites and therefore it's protected by, it, it has some protections from the First Amendment. Right. You know, when I, when I teach constitutional law and First Amendment, what I try to tell the students pretty early on in the course is that um, legislatures don't really care um, whether or not something is constitutional, right? What, what they want is um, the ability to tell their constituencies that they propose to solve a problem that the constituency has raised. So, you know, and, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about the details of some of these proposals, but, um, yeah. you know, people like, like, like Josh Hawley, um, Senator from Missouri, um, knows perfectly well that, um, that content moderation is itself protected speech. And therefore, there are all kinds of constitutional problems with conditioning content moderation on some kind of giving up of immunity. What I talk about in the paper is unconstitutional conditions. Um, but I still think, nevertheless, it's important to point out these legal problems w- with these proposals. And, and as you said in the question, it, they all kind of start with the premise that um, the content moderation is protected speech. So I, I think it's a real 
analytical uh, mistake to to try to distinguish um, Facebook or Twitter or any other platform from any other publisher of speech um, whose decisions would be absolutely protected in any context. You know, if the three of us wrote a, a letter to the editor to the New York Times and and, and they, they took Matthews and they denied Adams and mine and we asked them why um, and they responded. So further spinning out this hypothetical um, and they could say, well, we liked Matthews. Um, you and I would not have any kind of constitutional claim. Um, and, and, and I, I, I don't want to be too much of a, uh, uh, a professor here. Um, I understand why Jack Dorsey, uh, from Twitter or Mark Zuckerberg can't stand, can't sit in front of Congress and say, I can do whatever I want. You know, I, I, I could take down, um, if this, if this testimony was on Facebook, I could take down this question that you just asked me because I didn't like it. And there's nothing you can do about it. But, um, because that's protected speech, as you say, um, but I do think it's important to kind of start with the with with that first principle with respect, um, and 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 that should be kind of the opening uh, presumption with respect to any of these proposals, and and that's a very strong presumption. So we've talked a little. We've we've referred to Section Two Thirty. Maybe um, Matthew, before I ask you the next question, maybe I'll just give our audience the specific text that we're talking about. I mean, Section Two Thirty, like most statutes or many statutes, begins with some findings that Congress announces and some statements of policy that Congress announces. But the real key provision is 230C. Uh, C1 says, as we've already said, quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another content provi- information content provider. And so that's the, the shield. And then second, as referred to the, the sword, it says civil liability no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, um, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Um, I guess those are the the key provisions. Um, Matthew, so much of the debate the policy debate seems to be centered around this this notion of publisher status. Um, Enrique said there's many analogies that were offered about what these websites were doing back when this law was passed. Are they publishers? Are they like a library that just stocks shelves with information? Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this publisher distinction um, and how it's how it's being focused upon in these policy debates? I know that so many um, people in Congress have focused on this notion of publisher status. Is it really as important as the debate makes it out to be? Well, I think it's um, certainly important politically. I think uh, anyone who's been paying attention to the debate has noticed that uh, there are many commentators who focus on this supposed distinction between publishers uh, and platforms. Uh, however, as, as you know, um, uh, Enrique just outlined, though, that there are situations in which uh, traditional publishers actually do enjoy Section 230 protections because they've embraced the Internet. They have comment sections. Uh, they engage in social media. Uh, they want to attract people to their websites. Uh, and that's um, that's important because I think uh, I, I, I regret very much that uh, much of the debate in Section 230 focuses so heavily on social media uh, because it's political uh, everyone's, uh, especially on the political right, seems so concerned about um, allegations of bias that everyone's focusing mostly on the Googles, 
the Facebooks and the Twitters, but we shouldn't forget that Section 230 doesn't have a, a size requirement and nor does it have a purpose requirement. And and this, um, by the way, I think is a an issue that um, critics of Section 230 are aware of. So Senator Josh Hawley, for example, uh, in his proposal says, look, I only want this bill to uh, impact large firms, so firms that generate a certain amount of revenue or have a certain number of viewers per month. Uh, but but I think actually um, this doesn't quite address a lot of the anti-competitive concerns, um, namely that it just encourages large firms to buy up small firms, encourages small firms to sell. Uh, and, and also, though, I think uh, what I would like to emphasize is that kind of proposal really has a certain kind of content moderation uh, system in mind. Uh, so think about a very, very popular website like Wikipedia, for example, is massive, uh, one of the most popular websites on the planet, but engages in very little content moderation. It relies, relies on users uh, to engage in all that. So, so how a website like Wikipedia, which is very different to uh, Twitter or Facebook, for example, how would Wikipedia be able to state affirmatively that they don't engage in political bias? I mean, it would be very, very difficult just given their... Um, just given how they work. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's also important to, to point out that, that in the debate, there's a lot of so-called internet exceptionalism. You know, we, we had this, this model before these court cases in the 90s where there was a, a long record of law on what it meant for someone to be a publisher or something and what kind of liability there was there. Uh, and it, it's very weird being a libertarian in a position to feel like, you know, defending a piece of law where usually we're, we're the ones trusting in the common law that eventually common law would have figured this out. And I, I know uh, uh, Jennifer Huddleston and Brent Scorp, I think, have argued that absent Section 230, something like it would have emerged uh, in, in common law. Uh, and my response to that is a very definite maybe. Uh, but what we don't know is how much innovation would have been sacrificed on the altar there. Uh, so, yeah, there's just a few issues to keep in mind uh, while we discuss the proposals. And, you know, I, I realized I looked down at my notes, actually, uh, I, I, I attributed to Enrique the issues that actually that was the, the second part of your paper, the, the focus on bias, deep fakes, degrading content. You know, great minds and, think and, alike is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, so let's talk about the calls for reform before we, we, we come back to your papers then. Um, there have, as we've already mentioned, Senator Hawley, he has proposed legislation. Uh, that would change the way in which these companies would be eligible for the sorts of protections they currently enjoy under Section 230. The Trump administration has taken a more direct route. President Trump issued an executive order in late May. It was Executive Order 13925 on May 28, 2020, and it was titled Preventing Online Censorship. And this was sort of a, in some ways, a, in some ways it felt complicated, in some ways it felt simple. It felt complicated in the sense that this executive order brings in, I think, at least three federal agencies, right? It, it, it called upon the Department of Commerce's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix up the, the acronym here, the National Telecommunications and Admin Information Administration, the NTIA, which now is actually directed by Adam Kandub, who wrote the, the earlier paper for us. They were directed to file a petition for rulemaking, was it, at the FCC? The FCC would interpret and and... And, and as the NTIA calls upon it to do, clarify the meaning of Section 230. And then the Federal Trade Commission would be brought in to adjudicate complaints about whether companies who no longer had Section 230 protection were acting in ways that were anti-competitive or, or 
failed to live up to their obligations under consumer protection laws. It was some, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing up all the details, but in, in those ways, it was very complicated with, with three agencies, but at its core, it seemed to be a complaint about the ways in which Section 230C, those aforementioned provisions, reach companies that actively moderate content in the ways that, 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 that the Trump administration was complaining of. Okay, I've just butchered everything. Maybe one of you two could explain um, what this the, the regulatory framework is in, intended to do. No, I, I think that actually covers it. I, I would kind of, again, kind of starting with the first principle, at least in my view, um, you know, the, content, the concept of censorship, I think, in the context of content moderation, which, as you said, a lot of this is built on, in my view, is useless. Um, you know, the, the, this is not, as we said earlier, this is not censorship uh, in the sense that we have um, traditionally understood it. Um, there are some aspects of this that, that, that involve censorship, but it's actually by the proponents, um, not by the regulated entities. Um, well, wait, wait, wait a second. Why isn't it censorship? If, if Google were to take down a, a search result, which would have otherwise appeared in, in response to a search, or if Facebook takes down content, why isn't that censorship? Because... Um, Google is not the only Google and Facebook are not the only places where you can speak, right? I mean, if 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 if, if you were to exclude me uh, from this podcast uh, because you thought, um, you know, either for a good reason you think Enrique your paper says it all, you don't you don't have to say anything uh, in support of it, or you were to say Enrique, I took a second look at your paper, and you know maybe this isn't something that the the Gray Center wants to continue to feature. Um, you know, I, I might be. Uh, annoyed, um, but I, I certainly wouldn't be censored in the sense that the, the, that we have constantly uh, defined that term term in this country. Um, and, and and Matthew does talk well about the the idea of um, of bias um, that that is the basis for this bias of um, of particularly um, of, of, of conservative speech uh, on on social media platforms, which is a uh, Complete fiction, right? Uh, the the petition that you refer to is on the NTIA that was filed by the NTIA. So now this is in the FCC's lap, which we can also talk about. Um, doesn't exist. Uh, if, if any, if, if Facebook has, uh, I hate to be a Facebook cynic, but if uh, Facebook has shown itself to be anything um, successful in 2020, it is uh, a, a, an enabler for the dissemination of right wing content. Um, I, I think you could uh, you could look at the the ten or twenty most popular um, subjects uh, or most shared subjects on Facebook, and and, and they're all um, per, they're all uh, on the same side of issues that those who claim to be um, censored by Facebook. So so that 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 literally um, makes no sense. But you know, so so this this kind of the the the, the world that the, the the president's executive order describes, the world that the Department of uh, Commerce's uh, rulemaking petition describes, um, it just literally um, doesn't exist. And, and you know, if it, the kind of the statutory hook here, that which we can maybe talk about for a couple minutes, is is the second part of of Section 230 that Matthew mentioned, the idea that you can mon you can moderate content in quote good faith. Yeah. Um, which is, um, you know, as he said, in addition to the the, the complete immunity. Uh, that's immediately earlier in the statute. So this is a way to kind of get around the complete immunity earlier in the statute by trying to attack the more limited uh, immunity in the second part of the statute or the exemplar of, a, of an activity that would fall within the first broader part of the statute. 
And um, so what the president has said, what the NTIA has said is, let's talk about what good faith is. You know, we'll, we'll, let's presume that that editing, con that moderating content uh, on a um, because of uh, because you're you don't like conservative content. Let's presume that's not good faith. Well, again, that's the First Amendment problem. No one will admit it. But, you know, Facebook and Twitter can moderate whatever they want. They cannot um, post Josh Hawley's tweets because they think he's an idiot and there's nothing that that, that anyone can do about it. Um, but the more important thing is is that this entire statutory scheme is built on the idea that the platform itself gets to define what good faith is, and the platform itself gets to define what is and is not um, appropriate third party speech on its platform. So, so the 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 end around the use of to try to use Section C two of uh, Section two thirty to get around what is an absolute immunity of C one is superficially appealing because uh, you know. Good faith is a common law concept too. You know, we all have our sense, personal senses of what good faith is and isn't. But those those uh, those determinations can inform what the platform considers to be um, content that's appropriate. Matthew, I was going to bring up the the good faith question too, and uh, your paper obviously touches on it since it's part of the statute. How would you how would you say we should understand this provision of of good faith? Because to say that. In the statute that, you know, there are actions could be taken voluntarily in good faith to restrict access seems to imply that there's such a thing as bad faith on the part of, of these companies. Or, or is it one of these situations where the words were, I mean, it was just sort of sometimes, you know, you add in a lot of words into a statute, sort of belt and suspenders or, or whatever. Is this just, is good faith just sort of superfluous here? Mm. Uh, it's interesting to to think about that question in the context of when the law was written um, we, today it's all about conservative bias or um, election interference but you know 1996 the, the concern was the spread of pornography on the internet and uh, the the good faith at least as as I've um, as I've read is looking also at the literature on uh, you know Jeff Kosef's biography of the law uh, I think mentions that the the, the language there um, as I understand it is is intended to encourage you know, people to write terms of services, right? That you are free to say, look, uh, this is a, a website for, uh, I don't know, people who like baseball and football fans will be kicked off, uh, which is, you know, that, and, and it does not require that the terms necessarily um, are immune from false positives or false negatives, right? The fact that a content moderation policy is not consistently applied um, is not a requirement. Uh, and no, you can complain about it. And indeed, I think you'll find many complaints on the political right about how um, what Twitter is doing is not in good faith because uh, it seems to be so politically uh, discriminatory. Um, and, but that's not, I think, um, the legal aha uh, gotcha that, that a lot of critics um, have and my understanding of the language there, and I want to stress here, I'm I think I'm the only person on the call without a JD. But my my understanding there is that uh, the, the 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 purpose of that language is to encourage firms to co create content moderation, not fear what's in their own terms of service. Um, so I don't think that because you can point to imperfections in content moderation. Uh, practices that you somehow lose Section 230 protection, right, and not be cons not be transformed into a publisher through content moderation. Right? Yes, I mean, exactly. That, yeah, yeah. And and by the way, if I could say one more thing, Adam, you know the the, the one of the many um, inanities surrounding this debate is that you know this whole thing started. You know the the, the impetus for this executive order was not content moderation. 
right? It was Twitter labeling a tweet by President Trump, but that's not content moderation. That's Twitter speech, right? So I think that's a, yet another uh, indication that this is um, that this is not this is not a con- this is not a conversation about free speech, and in many ways it's the opposite of that. And then if I could just give one more example of that, um, you know, when when this executive order came out, of course, you know, the FCC uh, commissioners were asked what they thought about it, you know, because this is much more important than you know the ra- or and I should say much more sexy to the media than things like you know. Uh, prison phone call rates and, you know, 5Gs and and auctions and things like that. So the FCC commissioners are immediately asked what they think of this. Um, Mike O'Reilly, who is a a pretty conservative guy um, appointed by a a Republican president, was who I had worked with his office on on First Amendment issues involving municipal broadband, um, is asked what he thinks about it. He says, I'm not so sure about this. You know, we're not the First Amendment police. Again, consistent with what his position has been with a lot of other issues, including net neutrality. Um, very shortly thereafter, finds out that he hasn't been renominated to the FCC, which is a fit of pique, which we're we're, we're used to uh, with respect to the executive branch at this point. But and yet another irony is going to ha- cause this um, this petition to go nowhere. <laughs> Because in the absence of five FCC commissioners, you'll have two Democratic commissioners and two Republican commissioners. In the absence of O'Reilly, who has to recuse, you know, because he's going to go look for a job because he can't be an FCC commissioner anymore. So this is literally going to, as a procedural matter, regardless of a legal matter, regardless of policy matter, as a procedural matter, this is going to go nowhere. So, um, you know, I think which is further evidence of the idea that this is really just about signaling and intimidation rather than what the actual text of Section 230 should mean. Now, in the in the Hawley the Hawley proposal, one way to look at it would be to say this is about um, th- this is about information disclosure. Right? So much of the debate surrounding uh, content moderation and 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 so on, uh, it's not clear. I mean, people make allegations. They say I was discriminated against, and you say, "Well, prove it." And they'll say, "Well, look, I was treated this way. Somebody else was treated that way." But that's not proof on its face of intentional discrimination. Uh, Matthew's paper actually goes into this in, in great detail with respect to the controversy surrounding Dennis Prager and Prager U. Um, I can't remember if that was, those were YouTube videos or, or YouTube. Um, and as, as, as Matthew points out, and I, I thought this was exactly the right way to frame it, it was far from obvious that uh, Prager U's, um, uh, what the, the activity that Prager U is complaining about uh, was politically motivated, but then the question is, how should we know? And it seems to me that that what the Hawley proposal is trying to get at is to create a regulatory framework that would force disclosure obligations upon these companies. It would put the burden on them to demonstrate that they're conducting their 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 operations in certain ways in order to maintain their Section Two Thirty protection. And of course, again. Um, Enrique has raised First Amendment consider, concerns about that, and and those are noted. But let's just bracket them for a moment. Um, to the extent that these technologies, these websites and platforms are so important in our lives, and and yes, there's a lot of them, but some of them are particularly central, um, or at least pr- particularly predominant. Isn't there some value in creating a regulatory framework that puts the burden on them to disclose what they're doing, so that we can better understand? What they're doing. I noticed in Section 230 in the policies statement, um, one of the many policies Congress has announced, and these policies always cut in so many different directions. One of them said 
to encourage the development of technologies which maximize user control over what information is received. Um, so is, wouldn't there be a way in the spirit of that policy um, goal of Congress 25 years ago to put more disclosure obligations on the companies so that the users themselves can better understand what's happening? That was a long-winded question, but yeah, maybe Matthew no, will start uh, with you. So I can take a stab at it. I, I'll just begin by, I suppose, noting to, to, to listeners that that content moderation is not static uh, in the sense that these... Um, you have content moderation rules, which are kind of these these mini constitutions for these uh, these companies. Uh, but what's going on in the back end, which seems to be what Senator Hawley is concerned about, which, well, how are these decisions implemented? Who are the enforcers of these content moderation rules? Uh, a lot of this is done by uh, human beings, um, but a lot is uh, done uh, automatically by um, artificial intelligence tools. And that changes all the time. Uh, and there are oftentimes issues that emerge around the world where uh, these are tweaked on a on a on a regular basis, and so I, I'm not quite sure uh, one what that kind of transparency looks like looks like, other than giving lawmakers a literal, uh, sorry, not a literal, but a, a figurative uh, uh, backdoor into the into the company. Um, but but secondly, this goes. I think a, a bigger concern, though, is. Uh, one I touched on earlier, but I think is related, uh, namely that this requirement is, I think, actually rather anti-competitive. Uh, and it's going to be harder for uh, firms that are competing with market incumbents to uh, to compete if a lot of how they're trying to get an edge on an incumbent company uh, through content moderation by providing a different tool is is available. Um, now, you can argue, well, it'll be available to Congress and not to the broader public. Uh, they only have to reveal this to lawmakers. Uh, but I think there's still nonetheless a potential stifling effect there. Um, so, so I suppose in some, I would say, one, um, it's hard to be transparent about something that's changing all the time, uh, absent just universal access. Um, and number two, I worry about the potential anti-competitive nature of this. And that the anti-competitive nature is the point that Enrique's already made as well and, and in his paper that if if certain standards, best practices or whatever are effectively codified into law, mm -hmm. this is going to advantage the incumbent companies that already have immense resources to sustain either, you know, costly AI platforms um, or just in, in general, this will, this with so many regulatory frameworks, advantage the incumbents who have already built up these things that are now being codified into law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if I could just add, you know, I, I think yeah, it's, um, it, it's always interesting to me when I reflect on uh, the, my role in this debate that that I sometimes seem to be portrayed as some defender of market incumbents, when in fact, I think a lot of my motivation is that um, I don't want there to be um, uh, an American internet that's dominated by um, a lot of these firms. Now, a, a lot of these firms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they're clearly providing services that a lot of people like uh, and a lot of people want. Uh, but uh, I think a requirement for a innovative market is, is competition. And the, the worry I have is that you end up making the internet a much less interesting place if they do become uh, over if, if the internet becomes dominated by these firms uh, and and the worry is that uh, this is something libertarians talk about a lot which is these companies will probably oppose regulations up until the point they view them as inevitable and then they can step forward and say but oh but our standards look I'm I'm from YouTube and YouTube has the best standard for video content moderation um that that's a serious concern and uh one of the unintended consequences I think of a lot of um, big tech critics um uh 
pushing for these kind of reforms is actually, I think, um, in the long run, they risk making the firms they hate much stronger, uh, which is something I wish they would consider a bit more. Enrique, in your paper, although you raise these First Amendment concerns, you do end with a couple of possible policy reforms. One is speaker-based disclosures, and then two is labeling deep fakes requiring speaker-based disclosures and, and requiring label, labeling deep fakes. Why don't you describe that? And I'd be interested in hearing Matthew's reactions to them. Yeah, I think it really ties into your kind of your last question and that um, I, I think it is a, a, a good default presumption to assume that reason giving is good. You know, Adam, you and I are administrative law professors. We're at the, you know, this is for the Gray Center. Um, so, so you know, we, we support uh, the, the presumption that reason giving is good and that uh, transparency is good. So given that, uh, I think that, you know, even even a courts that are operating under a, uh, a maximalist view of the First Amendment, which I think is, ac- which is a, an accurate description of the term now, um, even, even, even in this kind of maximalist First Amendment world, I, I think that courts have generally found that disclosure is permissible. Um, so more, and, and, and this is based on the idea that more information is a good thing. Um, so given that, I mean, perhaps if, 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 if we're, if we're, if we want to make some, um, positive, um, not, not uniformly positive as I'm sure Matthew will say, but if we want to make some positive, um, reforms in this area, um, perhaps things like requiring disclosures on online advertisements, the same as what we do with respect to broadcast advertisements. And here I'm talking about third party political advertisements, which is a significant, but not a complete portion of, of, of the world that we're talking about. Maybe those kind of disclosures, uh, would, would lead to more information, um, for, for users and, and, a, and a better, um, a better communication space. And similarly, you know, the deep fake issue, as Matthew actually does talk about quite a bit, is a little bit more complicated. You know, California kind of has passed a law requiring the labeling of deep fakes. Again, you know, the the labeling or not, I think that's a position that that that, that I think one could take. Uh, find that that's that, that that's okay. You know, but what you run into are um, problems with respect to coming up with a methodology as to what's fake. You know, and then there's a there's you know First Amendment jurisprudence about what satire is. Um, so then you, it's it's hard to avoid a lot of these questions. But 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 um, presuming that there are answers to these questions, I think disclosure as a uh, as a tool for transparency, probably on net would be a good thing. If you again, if you can get there. Yeah, uh, I, I thought the um, those those proposals were an interesting part of, of course, a, a universally interesting paper. Uh, and I um, likewise I have a few um, so a few thoughts. Um, one, my uh, my my worries about the the deep fake debate mostly hinge on um, a, a lack of a good definition. Um, you have oftentimes uh, a a piece of footage that has been altered somewhat, being called a deep fake when it's not. So my my first question is, I'm I'm not prima facie against a, um, a labeling requirement, but that's mostly because I haven't thought about it as long as I would like. Uh, but some concerns that come to mind are one about one of definition, uh, two um, perhaps also intent or the use. Uh, we're very used to deepfakes being discussed in the context of uh, you know, bad actors like those engaging in uh, so-called uh, revenge pornography or election interference. But a few weeks ago, I was watching a documentary put out by HBO, uh, which was filming uh, gay people in Chechnya. Um, and Chechnya is not a very safe place to be gay. Uh, and the producers used uh, deepfake technology on the, the faces of the people they were uh, filming in order to disguise them in a realistic way, um, which seems like a, a, a 
very useful uh, application of the technology uh, that that would be that I think is valuable. And of course, there are the valid uses of the technology in education and satire. Uh, tons of First Amendment protected activity uh, can easily use um, deepfakes. Uh, whether the the labeling of it or not um, is should be required, I think, depends on what's the punishment for failing to do that. Uh, because uh, part of the problem with deepfakes is they're oftentimes hard to identify. Uh, so what what does that mean for firms? How are their incentives lined up? Uh, as far as some um, political ads, uh, I, I was listening earlier today to Ellen uh, uh, Dickinson, who came to Cato to talk about um, these kind of concerns. And I'm not an election uh, campaign finance lawyer, but but I'll just mention that uh, you know Google did uh, temporarily exit Maryland, for example, after uh, a passage of laws that require disclosure or that uh, they keep records similar to what's required for TV and uh, radio. Uh, I, I, I suppose when you're faced with that, you have to decide, well, is are these kind of requirements uh, doing more damage than good? Um, if you uh, taking taking that approach. Uh, and, and also, I, I think we have to be careful when talking about online ads that uh, they're, they're very, it's a much more dynamic market than traditional TV and radio ads. And the requirements, um, it's not strictly speaking, as a straightforward relationship uh, between selling an ad and um, buying one as it is in TV and radio. Uh, so I won't say, you know, that, that I want to categorically oppose um, any of these suggestions, but I'll just, um, I, I issue those um, as areas to ponder while thinking of such proposals. Enrique, do you have any, any reactions before we, we close? Those, those are all great points, I think, you know, but I, I think an advocate, uh, a strong advocate for these positions would say, you know, the, the fact that it is, probably easier to buy uh, for a third party to buy a Facebook ad than it is to buy a television ad probably cuts in favor of disclosure um, rather than rather than being more hesitant about it in the online space um, well as, as I mentioned um, in an earlier roundtable and an earlier conference a conference in November of 2019 we uh, we, we, we saw a presentation of a paper by Adam Kandub. That paper is available in our working paper series. It's paper number 19-33, and the title is Common Carriage and Section 230. He argues sort of analogizing the role of, say, Facebook or Twitter or Google to uh, the role of the infrastructure, the actual infrastructure companies that were um, faced regulation under net neutrality. He calls for a similar neutrality platform, uh, or sorry, similar neutrality framework to be imposed upon some of these companies, treating them as analogous to common carriage. So I'd encourage people to either look up that paper as well or the conference, the video uh, from November when it was discussed. But again, our guests today have been Enrique Armijo and Matthew Feeney. Uh, Enrique's paper is titled Reasonableness as Censorship, Algorithmic Content Moderation, the First Amendment and Section 230 Reform. It's working paper number 20-10. And by Matthew Feeney. The paper is titled Defending the Indispensable Allegations of Anti-Conservative Bias, Deepfakes, and Extremist Content Don't Justify Section 230 Reform. That's working paper 20-11. Enrique, Matthew, thanks for joining us today. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. Please look for the other podcast episodes arising from our roundtable on the regulation of internet platform companies. Hope you'll join us again next time.